From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. Most knew him as a Pulitzer Prize-winning food writer of the LA Times and LA Weekly, others as a former punk cellist. He called himself the belly of Los Angeles. To me, he was a colleague at Good Food for 20 years and also a dear friend. As many of you know, Jonathan Gold left us one year ago last week at the age of 57. It's his birthday this Sunday, and so we're revisiting our special tribute show that aired last year. We gathered together more than 30 voices to remember this remarkable human being, what it was like to work with him, talk with him, and, of course, eat with him. This episode was nominated for a James Beard Award, and I thought you might like to hear it as we continue to remember Jonathan. I remember he would bring in these crumpled up menus and riff off of the dishes that he had eaten. And you knew he had eaten every single one of those dishes a number of times. That's Jennifer Farrow, president of KCRW and my first producer at Good Food. She helped bring Jonathan Gold onto the show more than 20 years ago in 1998. At that time, Jonathan was mainly known to Angelinos through his writing as a masked food critic. Those regular appearances on Good Food revealed his distinctive voice to the world. Later on, we gave the segments a name, Good Food on the Road. When I was the assistant to Ruth Seymour, the general manager of KCRW, I was given this food show to produce. And then Evan, we crossed paths, and then you became the host. And soon after that, so that was 1998, and soon after that, we brought Jonathan Gold on. Because Jonathan Gold at that time was at the LA Weekly, and he wrote Counterintelligence. How did it happen, though? Was it your idea, Ruth's idea? Well, it had to have been my idea and your idea. (laughs) I don't even remember that far back. You know, so many people over the last few days have been asking me about dates and, and how long this and when that. And the thing about my relationship with Jonathan is I feel like it's always been there. Can I talk about your first relationship with Jonathan? Because I remember this very, very well. Yes. So, okay, as a producer, um, what you do is you try to make the host the best. You try to make them shine. You try to make them comfortable, educated, informed on who they're talking to, and the best representative for the audience. So Evan is a sympathetic person, meaning that when someone's mood comes in, she will she will mirror that mood. When someone has a certain way of speaking, Evan will, you know, accommodate that. It's, it's a very sympathetic quality. So Jonathan Gold was a very peculiar person in terms of interpersonal relations. As, like, he was so shy. He's very shy. And his manner of speaking was very halting. When we would be on the microphone, sometimes he would go quiet for minutes at a time. Yeah, and you, you'd be sitting there looking at him going like, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> for me, it was also that I was so intimidated by him for so long. Yeah. Really intimidated. And I can understand why. And and I will speak for all of the producers, the legacy of good food producers who have come after me who had to edit Jonathan. So we had this thing, and I remember, and I don't know if it was Harriet Ells, who you'll hear from soon, Jonathan did this thing where he'd go, and... And you could hear, like, what he's doing is thinking, like, what's the next clause that's coming after that and? And it should be the biggest opening of the year. And, 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 and hamburgers. I mean, everybody goes nuts about her hamburgers. But we would have these debates like, do we edit out the end? Do we leave in the end? How many ends do you leave in? I just want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to have those conversations with him. They were so special to me. 
Sometimes when I would be so burned out during the years that I had Angeli, and I would come into the studio from the restaurant, and I so did not want to talk about another restaurant's food while I was struggling, slogging through my own. Within 30 seconds, he had me engaged. Yeah. You know, he would fall into, especially in the early days, he would fall into like a rabbit hole. The Chinese noodle rabbit hole just seemed to be the deepest and widest for a bit, for a long time. He would pull out those crumpled menus, and five of them would be SGV noodle places, and you would be so despairing. We're going to San Gabriel, as we do so often. We're going to, I guess it's Rosebead. I see you have what looks like a Chinese menu in front of you. For a change. We're going to the ever-popular city of San Gabriel. Ooh. Is it a new place? No, it's been there 20 years. So, so great. But it's so great that we got to ride his career through him leaving the San Gabriel Valley. It's true. (laughs) And finding other places to talk about. It's true. Thank you, Jennifer. Yeah, thank you, Evan. That's Jen Farrow, president of KCRW and my first good food producer. I was curious to learn more about how Jonathan became Jonathan, So we tracked down some of his former colleagues. Mike Sigmund was publisher of the LA Weekly during both of Jonathan's stints at the paper. He was there in the early 80s when Jonathan was in his early 20s. And it was a time when LA Weekly was very young. Uh, I started there in 1983, and Jonathan started as a proofreader not too much later than that, and also started writing about music very early on. And he was one of many people on the staff who uh, was a punk musician and and whose primary um, activities were not L.A. Weekly, although Weekly formed a sort of community for a lot of these musicians. And Jonathan at that time was different than most of the other staff because he had been trained in classical music and was also a a punk cellist. And I remember my earliest uh, interactions with him were about music and, and about classical music. And I remember so vividly him telling me about how amazing it was when Joseph Haydn first burst onto the music scene hundreds of years ago. And so, and what that told me was that he was, he was a punk, but he wasn't somebody that just learned how to play his instrument yesterday. He, he was really steeped in the history of music and intellectualism and writing and poetry and all that sort of thing. And I just was sort of in awe of his, of his uh, intellectual prowess. He was also kind of an angry guy at that time, as were many of the people on the weekly staff who I was in charge of. I remember when I got my first house after a couple of years, and Jonathan came to my housewarming party, and everyone else was saying, oh, this is a cool house and all that sort of thing. And Jonathan came up to me and, and uh, with a twinkle in his eye said, property is theft. And then <laughs> turned around and walked away. And I just love that. It's, you know, it's the most memorable moment of, of that day. And, you know, over the years, he, he became, I think, a much more kind, generous person. And, but he never, let, he never lost that edge. In terms of his development as a writer... Were there people who mentored him, or did he come more fully formed out of the academic world? Well, you know, I was the publisher, and I wasn't involved on a day-to-day basis with that. But I do uh, remember 
Michael Ventura was uh, was certainly an influence on him, and you know Ventura was very original in his writing and boundary shattering and original. And I think Jonathan picked up a lot from that, and he also learned a lot as he later wrote from Bob Labraska, who was an editor at the paper in the '80s, an incredibly good editor. I think the way Jonathan described it was that Labraska would read him back his original draft uh, in a sarcastic voice, and that would teach Jonathan something about, you know, how it possibly could be improved. Did he start from the very beginning writing in the second person? No, uh, I don't remember that in his in his music writing, and I do remember that he wrote a lot about punk, but also about uh, hardcore rap and, and metal and with equal zest and passion. And again, I didn't like some of those kinds of music, but when I read him about them, it gave me a little bit of a window into appreciating it more. But I, I think it was in the mid-'80s when he started writing a lot about food and had the column, and he, was, he wrote about music for years after that regularly. Did he get along with his colleagues? He got along with many of his colleagues and not all. And I would say that over the years, he got along with almost everybody. And I know that when he died, uh, I heard from people that worked with him at the Weekly who didn't have the greatest interactions with him. And they were either sad that they hadn't connected with him later on or happy that they had and, and saw a real evolution in him. And I certainly saw that. Did you perceive that the partnership between himself and Lori Ochoa, who at the beginning was an intern there, would become such a formidable thing? No, I had no idea. I mean, everyone had a crush on Lori, and um, they ended up together. And when I got fired from the Weekly after being there almost 20 years, and I had hired Lori back as the editor before I left, and she had brought Jonathan back. Almost the minute I got fired, they invited me out to dinner, and we went to Campanile, and they, it was like a three- or four-hour love fest, and it was just so amazing to see the two of them dining together. It was like one organism sharing things, and, and they didn't even have to hardly say anything. It was like the food was the language. How marvelous. But my last interaction with him um, was after Anthony Bourdain died, and he wrote a beautiful piece about it. And I emailed him, and I said, you know, um, I don't know anything about food. I almost never go out to eat. I never watched his show. But what a beautiful piece that was. And, you know, within about 30 seconds, he wrote back, thanks, Mike. It means a lot. And I think it did mean a lot. It meant a lot to me. That's former LA Weekly publisher Mike Sigman. Now for a few of Jonathan's LA Weekly colleagues. They graciously took the time to share their memories with us. My name is Tom Christie, and I was the arts editor and then senior editor at the LA Weekly from 1995 to the end of 2011. As Ruth Reichel and others have noted, Jonathan was maddening on deadline. This was because he never, ever turned his copy in on time. Why does it matter? Because there are people waiting. You were waiting, copy editors were waiting, proofreaders, art directors, and behind them, production people and the printers. So you would give Jonathan fake deadlines, which he sensed like a cartoon roadrunner, and you would wait and then text him and leave voicemails, and you would hear nothing back. And finally, at the last conceivable moment, his column would show up, and your face, perhaps red from anger, would turn to a different shade of red, one of embarrassment, because you understood, once again, why it had taken this long. 800 words, and always in the second person, so that you felt you were there with him. And in a way, you were. A man with superior taste and knowledge, he never made you, the reader, feel like you didn't belong at the same table with him. And of course, he himself reveled in the lowbrow. 
At an LA Weekly night at Dodger Stadium once, Jonathan sat next to me. I wanted to watch the game, but he wouldn't stop talking about the effing hot dogs. One thing Jonathan never talked about was a deadline issue, possibly out of some sense of shame, but more likely because he didn't see it as the primary difficulty. He seemed to follow Liebling's edict, the only way to write is well, and how you do it is your own damn business. My name is Sue Horton, and I edited Jonathan for six years at the LA Weekly during the late 1990s. Long before the internet existed, Jonathan knew everything about every cuisine. We once went to a new place in San Gabriel that he'd somehow learned was the only restaurant outside of China serving a particular type of Beijing snacks. He would have discussions with waiters about braised deer penis or dried flotation bladders or some unusual variation of soon tofu, and servers who spoke no English would grin and nod enthusiastically at his ordering, suggesting other things that weren't on the menu. While some would try to steer him away from things gringo didn't like, most of them got that he was no ordinary gringo. He did, though, have his limits. Once, when I was editing the LA Times op-ed page, he told me his brother Mark, an environmental scientist, had urged him to write a piece about eating shark. Jonathan always wrote great endings for his pieces, but this one was maybe my favorite. After recalling a delicious bowl of shark fin soup he'd eaten years earlier, he described why he would never have it again. It is hard, he wrote, to work up an appetite for the bitter taste of extinction. My name is Erica Zora Wrightson, and I started working with Jonathan Gold at the LA Weekly in 2008. When I started working as an intern at the LA Weekly, I had just graduated from college, and my mother was dying. Jonathan and Lori became my professional idols and mentors. After a few internship extensions, Lori invited me to be her assistant. I would often get asked to dinner with Jonathan. He introduced me to Jitlada, gooey duck clams, and taught me how to pocket a menu. Our last dinner together, we marveled at the dismantling of a brisket with an electric knife at Friedman's in Echo Park. Jonathan and Lori sat across from me in their natural splendor. Afterward, two fans stopped us outside of the restaurant and asked for a photo with JG. As usual, he obliged. Jonathan was never too busy or too famous to listen to the city and let it see and be seen with him. Coming up, a look at the man's impact on local restaurant owners. Stay with us. Here Be Monsters is a podcast about, well, it's about a lot of things. It's about faith and doubt, love and loneliness, optimism and grief. It's a podcast about the things that frighten us and the things that we can't get out of our heads. Here Be Monsters, KCRW's podcast about the unknown. New episodes out now. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food on KCRW. It's Jonathan Gold's birthday tomorrow, so we're remembering the man by revisiting our tribute show from last year. Hi, my name is Fabiola, and I'm from Marina Del Rey, California. Andrea and Whittier. Hi, my name is Sammy. I'm calling from Pacific Palisades. Hi, my name is Daphne Brooks. I live in New Haven, Connecticut. My name is Richard Foss, and I live in Manhattan Beach. As a food historian, I occasionally would contest Jonathan Gold with some kind of strange question about the early days of some cuisine in Los Angeles. He was a fantastic resource. Goodbye, Jonathan. We'll all miss you. Brenda Gonzalez in downtown Los Angeles. Jonathan Gold did a magnificent job of putting into words the delicacy that is the street taco. Jonathan Gold was at the front line defending what was truly, uniquely original about the city I love. When Jonathan started writing about food, most restaurant writing was synonymous with fine dining. 
Instead, Jonathan championed taco trucks, Ethiopian food, and San Gabriel Valley noodle shops. His insistence on taking these cuisines seriously transformed lives, saved restaurants, and brought a renewed sense of pride to those communities. And restaurant after restaurant, you have your Ethiopian spots, of course, the San Gabriel Valley, but even talking about Salvadoran cuisine, talking about Cambodian cuisine in Long Beach, these restaurants that he knew when he wrote about them, there would be a gold rush, pardon the really, really bad pun. That's Gustavo Arellano. We've been talking about the incalculable impact Jonathan had on local restaurants. So many people are talking about Jonathan Gold, the food writer, the, probably the greatest food writer of them all. But for me, Jonathan was one of the great Southern California prophets of them all. I mean, I, I put them in that same pantheon, like, you know, uh, Bukowski, Mike Davis, but they always had like this negativity, like, you know, this is paradise lost here. For Jonathan, Southern California was paradise and the great salvation was these ethnic restaurants all across the Southland. So talk about Burritos La Palma. So Burrito La Palma is your quintessential Jonathan Gold success story. Here is a small little burrito shop in El Monte making burritos that Southern California literally had never seen. Burritos made from birria de res. We all know what birria is, a goat stew, but here's this very regional form from uh, Jerez Zacatecas, where my family happens to be from. This is more of a birria that you associate with northern Mexico. Though it must be said that, you know, Zacatecas is not northern Mexico. It's every bit as central Mexico as Jalisco is. Jonathan immediately finds out about it, immediately starts praising it, then around 2015 calls it one of the five best burritos in Southern California and the only Mexican burrito. And ever since then, Albert and Burrito La Palma has been catering for everyone from, you know, John and Vinny to Nancy Silverton. He even catered part of the funeral for Jonathan. I realized when I was trying to take in my own grief, what grief was going to be like for people who have very humble, small businesses for whom he was their savior. Absolutely. I mean, you you have so many stories of these, you know, and not just the small, humble places, but even a spot like, say, Taco Maria. Taco Maria, who Jonathan named uh, Restaurant of the Year for 2018. Here's this, uh, you know, pretty, you know, somewhat famous place down in Orange County, Carlos Salgado doing this Alta California cuisine, but really not getting the attention that he deserves because, hello, it's Orange County. Whoever pays attention Jonathan paid attention. Jonathan comes in, gives it a great review. His first uh, Gold 101 for the LA Times immediately puts him, I think it was the first year number three. I know uh, Taco Maria has never been lower than five. And that's Jonathan's ultimate legacy. I mean, his memory will always live on. And as long as these restaurants are, which will be decades, people will always remember what he did for them. So gracias, Evan. That's Gustavo Arellano talking about Jonathan's relationship with LA's restaurant owners. When Jonathan Gold passed one year ago, there was an outpouring of grief and gratitude from chefs and owners about how Jonathan touched their lives. We wanted to share a few of them with you here, starting with Roy Choi. Jonathan, I love you. I miss you. You led us, you showed us, and you changed so many people's lives, not only from the vendor and the restaurant and their lives as families, but you also created a bridge for others to be able to eat our food, to understand our cultures. I just can't believe you're gone, man. And we're eating at a restaurant that probably all of us ate at 10 years ago and completely forgot about. What is it called? Jitlada. Jitlada. My name is Jazz Singsanong, and I'm from Jitlada, LA. When we first start restaurant, we 
empty because we were owner a different food and uh, when we came we start from the scratch people will tell me you know what your food is so good one day Jonathan go we walk in and when they say that I didn't even know what they mean Jonathan go walk in and what Jonathan go doing because I didn't understand about American food critic one day he sit down in the restaurant and um, I ran to Tui and said, Tui, it's Jonathan go in, you know. They say Jonathan go come, people come. But I'm only happy that he come, but still I didn't know what that means that he come. But I make Thai coffee, Thai tea, no one in the world know what I put. But Jonathan go sip and he put it in every weekly. Thank God that nobody pay attention that day. But oh my God, how... How Jonathan go no like separate thing in the drink, and even the food you know you just serve him and he will tell you, this is lemongrass, this is turmeric, this is kachai, this is the Thai eggplant. Like he know everything about food. Southern Thai cooking is the hottest cooking in Thailand and possibly anywhere. I mean, it is hard to imagine anything hotter than say Jetla does specialty beef curry. He is Los Angeles, you know. He's he's the big man of the food and you know I have people from around the world and every time people come and eat food, only thing I ask him like how do you know my place and he say, Oh, we've Jonathan Go fan and after they finish eating he will get up and tell me, Jonathan Go is always right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well this is Raul Ortega, owner at Mariscos Jalisco. I think the first time that I met um, Mr. Gold was at uh, LA Street Food Fest. I got invited there. So funny that uh, my truck didn't work. I had to tow it to to the Rose Bowl that day. And arriving there, I, was, I see all these fancy trucks, very beautiful trucks, and my old white beat-up truck was on a, on a tow truck. But at the end of the night was the biggest reward because we were best in show and people's choice so probably I had a uh, 90 plus percent uh, Latino customers but after him everything changed a lot of people from all over the place I just love the way he presented himself he was always very very humble uh, very nice very kind very soft-spoken you know the writings that he did I mean amazing I don't know where he he found all, all the words. He even said once that if you haven't tried Mariscos Jalisco, it's like if you came to L.A. and you didn't visit uh, Tiger Stadium. And that was, I mean, the biggest thing ever that I heard him say, you know. Obviously, he changed our lives. My name is Jordan Kahn. I'm the chef owner of Vespertine in uh, Culver City. Speaking of Jonathan Gold is, you know, we're not in a normal place. And so when you set to move the boundary uh, of whatever it is that you're doing. It often incites a lot of individuals who don't typically care for those types of things. They like for their boundaries to be where they are. And he saw us truly for what we were and not for what he thought we were. And to say he changed my life would be a, a gross understatement. I mean, I was actually harvesting salicornia in the wetlands. I was like knee deep in mud and I had really bad cell phone reception and my wife called me to tell me and 
I didn't know what she was saying. I got slightly frustrated and I hung up. <laughs> so I'll call you back when I get, get better reception. And when I finally made two, she's like, idiot, he just named you number one. And I like remember that ride very vividly. But it wasn't for the next day that it really hit me, which was to see how it affected my staff. I lost it. I, I would never be able to repay what Jonathan did for us. My name is Gannetta Gonafer from Mills by Gannett Restaurant. Everybody knew I was on the verge of closing down. And after he came, everything just completely turned around from having zero people to lines everywhere. It wouldn't have happened without Jonathan. Nothing for me would have happened without Jonathan. I loved him with all my heart. He was a great father, a great husband. When he included me in the documentary, City of Court, I could not even believe it now because of Laura. Thank God for Laura. We have him forever. I would watch him for the rest of my life. I'm Chef Jatila, uh, one of the first Thai food families from L.A., and also the floor reporter of Iron Chef America. Jonathan Gold was probably the most important person almost ever to, to really shine the light on the Thai community and Thai food, uh, not just in L.A., but in America. I mean, he really brought national, if not global, eyeballs to Thai people's plight, you know, from the 60s to now. I'm Chef Sang Yoon a father's office, and Lakshan. Jonathan Gold was my unofficial father. Thinking back to Jonathan's first review of me, I, I really didn't think he liked me. That kind of stirred me in the right way. I, I thought, wow, I've got I've to impress this guy. I've got to figure out a way for him to uh, get to know what I'm really about. And it took a long time, but I think, you know, the better part of two decades, I think he f- figured me out. His last review of me, there's a line that says, Sangyun tinkers with exo sauce the same way your cousin Gabe tinkers with his old Corvette. And I thought that was the most perfect sentence that says, now this guy really gets me. He understands not just what the finished product is, but he understands how this whole thing got there. Everybody does calamari these days, but when you get his calamari, you get you know little squid bodies stuffed with Thai sausage. That's a dish that I've actually seen versions of in books and sort of you know long far from afar, but I've never actually seen it on a plate. Um, and that was really meaningful to me. It's not hyperbole to say I learned more about Koreatown from Jonathan Gold than I did from my own family. I've continued to do so, and even over the years as I've gotten to know Jonathan. Uh, we would discuss Korean restaurants, sometimes argue about them. It was amazing to have such meaningful discussions about my own culture. And I really attribute a lot of the success of the Korean culture here in L.A. to you know, him lighting the pathway to us. Um, Korean food is, was here for a long, long time before anyone noticed. You know, without Jonathan's voice, I don't know where it would be. I think Jonathan Gold's in heaven right now. I think the streets of heaven are lined with taco trucks. And right now he's trying to figure out which one serves the best lengua. Coming up, more memories of Jonathan from Good Food Producers and Dear Friends. Stay with us. It's Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. We've been remembering the late, great Jonathan Gold. Five managing producers of Good Food have had the honor of working with Jonathan over the past 20 years. Joining me now are the next two producers after Jen Farrow. 
Harriet Ells, and Jillian Ferguson. What were some of the the highlight moments for you guys? One of the things I loved was how a lot of the times you started the segments, the conversations with, okay, Jonathan, where are we going today? Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Evan. Where are we going today? That was like the entry into this conversation where he would say, oh, we're going to, and then you were just, you were in it. We're going to the Grand Central Market downtown. You know, wherever he was taking you that day, even if it was, you know, some high-end restaurant on Melrose or... He really just sort of took you into whatever place it was. I don't know. I feel like now we have to take up the mantle ourselves as individuals. No guide can take his place. Mm -hmm. He was the best ambassador for Los Angeles. Like, I remember, you know, I would see him in New York or just traveling around, and he would have his Brooks Brothers shirt, his suspenders, and his Langer's baseball cap. And all the baggage and hot pastrami. I mean, he was walking around Copenhagen yeah. with a Langer's baseball cap. It was like his Dodgers jersey. You know, it was like how he repped L.A. Oh, God. Okay. In the studio with me now are Abby Swanson and Nick Liao. Nick is my current producer. Abby was the producer just before Nick. My favorite review of his was from October of 2016. Everson Royce Bar the Arts District. You know, Jonathan was talking about all the great things to consume there, bourbon, biscuits, um, Nancy Silverton's recipe for biscuits. And then at the end of the review, he's like, oh, and you know, you can also go and hang out and play bocce ball in the back. People are really bad at playing bocce ball there. There's an area where people are playing bocce ball really badly, I might say. <laughs> maybe they had too much to drink. Yeah, maybe. When people start, like, throwing their, their bocce balls as if they're Clayton Kershaw, <laughs> you know they've perhaps been overserved. Who's that? Who's what? Clayton Kershaw. You're f- kidding me. No. <clears throat> Do you know who Sandy Koufax is? Yes. Okay. He's that now. Oh, I don't. I'm and <laughs> we talked, and we kept the f bomb in there. And then he texted me as soon as it airs, and he's like, "Abby, what are you doing?" But it was so funny, and it was him. Somehow it came up that I'm Taiwanese. He was asking me about my favorite Taiwanese restaurants. He was like, "Have you been to He Shui Pastry? Have you been to Dai Ho for beef noodle soup?" He was deferential and he was humble in that way. He didn't assume he knew more than you, but. He did. He couldn't be concerned with deadlines because he was thinking about that stuff on the granular level. Jonathan wrote and edited for a handful of publications over his career, but he'll always be known for his work with the LA Weekly and the LA Times. In 2012, he returned to the LA Times as food critic, where he finished out his career. You know, certainly he was a model without having to say anything to me about it. But he was someone who had that relationship with a lot of writers at the L.A. Times and beyond. L.A. Times arts and culture writer Carolina Miranda was not only a colleague of Jonathan's during his final years at the Times, she was a friend who often dined in his home. A number of years ago, I wrote a chapter for this book about the history of Peruvian food in the United States, this connection between the United States and Peru. And my assignment was to research Peruvian restaurants on the West Coast of the United States. And then finally one day, I happened to be a freelance contributor at KCRW at the time, and I ran into Jillian Ferguson, who was then the producer of Good Food. And I told her, I said, look, I'm trying to get 10 minutes on the phone with Jonathan Gold. Can you tell me how I can do this? And she's like, you know, he's going to be in the studio on Monday. I can't tell you exactly what time, but just come and park yourself here. So I came and camped out outside your studio, I think, without you even knowing. <laughs> I was a very quiet lurker and basically waited for him to emerge. <laughs> 
<laughs> and tackled him with the tape recorder. <laughs> and then he did what he has done so many times. He became kind of a mentor. Yeah. You know, I think the interesting thing about Jonathan becoming a mentor is that he was so low-key about it. He wasn't one of those people who was like, I will mentor you now and tell you wise things. You know, once we sat down for the interview and we got talking, we had this like wonderful conversation that dragged on for more than an hour about his experiences of Peruvian food. Only later I found out that when I was up for my job at the LA Times working for his wife, Lori Ochoa, he told me later, he's like, well, you know, I advocated for you to get that job within the LA Times. Like I didn't even know that he had served as this kind of quiet reference. Like he had taken the time to get to know my work and recommended me to Lori and recommended me to the brass at the Times. And it was one of those things that I was just kind of stunned by that, you know, somebody of his stature would take the time to do that. And I think for a young writer who's starting out, you know, to hear from a Pulitzer Prize winner, who's someone who was as renowned as Jonathan, I mean, that means the world. Like, that's the kind of thing, like, when you're getting paid crap freelance wages, like, that's what keeps you going. It's funny. It's so not what one would imagine his persona to be, but I always think of him as this quiet man of action. (laughs) Yes. Yes. You know, and the interesting thing about him is that he was shy, and I think sometimes that could come off to people as maybe being a little aloof. But what he was doing is he was observing and absorbing everything like a sponge, and then he would quietly go and do things maybe without you even knowing, but you know, recommending me for a job without my knowledge. I mean, imagine not knowing that Jonathan Gold has recommended you for your job. That's It was kind of an amazing thing to find out. So in that regard, he is someone who I think, you know, he leaves huge shoes to fill, but he has also, I think, seated another generation of writers here in Los Angeles who will be thinking about him every time they sit before that empty screen. I've also run into you at Jonathan's home during some of his sort of lovely parties. Mm -hmm. Could you describe what it was like? It was about food, but it was also so much about people. It was Jonathan in the kitchen, barefoot. (laughs) Barefoot wearing frayed trousers (laughs) and a pinstripe shirt and suspenders. Yes, exactly. It was like sweating it out over some vat of gumbo or black-eyed peas or God knows what, um, some massive piece of pork. (laughs) In a super casual, welcoming environment. Absolutely. And I think that was the amazing part of it is it wasn't like some fussy sit-down dinner. You know, I've been to these those nightmare dinners where you sit down at like some really precious table and then the host tells you where all the food is sourced from. It's like, oh, well, this is from the blah, blah, farmer's market. You know, and it just turns into this whole kind of like show-offy, insane thing. And it was just kind of people milling around this hot kitchen and they had drinks and they were picking it food off the table and you'd go off and you'd talk to a film critic and then you'd go and talk to an artist and then you'd hang out with a writer and then you'd load up on some more bourbon. Like it was just this very congenial, generous space that both he and and Lori made in their home for like all these writer art weirdo nerds, you know, to like just hang out and exchange ideas. And And the food was always really good. Excellent. His gumbo. It's one of my favorite gumbos. It is. It's amazing. And then my favorite thing is when he'd make the, for New Year's, he'd make Hop and John. 
and he'd always make greens and he'd have the greens that he'd been simmering with like, I don't know, 17 pork bones for however many days, you know, like (laughs) everything's like infused with this like amazing pork broth. And then there would be the vegetarian version and he would always announce that there was like a vegetarian version in the kitchen that he had no intention of eating. (laughs) He's like, "Uh, vegetarians and vegans, yeah, there's some stuff over there for you. (laughs) Knock yourselves out. (laughs) Now for LA Times food editor Peter Meehan. He was a dear friend of Jonathan's and former editor of Lucky Peach magazine. I wanted to find out what it was like to eat with Jonathan. Oh, it was the best. It was the thing that unlocked LA for me. How did you meet him? It was like a con. I proposed a story about the state of American cuisine for the fourth issue of Lucky Peach. And I used our mutual friend, Robert Sietzma, as the Trojan horse to get into Jonathan's life. But between Sietzma and I, we propositioned Jonathan to meet us in Kansas City and retrace the steps of Calvin Trillin from that epic influential pieces he wrote in the late 60s and published in the early 70s that I think kind of defined the kind of American food writing that Jonathan and Robert did. But it was all just a cheap setup so that I could try to become friends with Jonathan because I wasn't and I really wanted to be. Describe what would happen when you would go out to dinner with him. Did you meet him at the restaurants or did he come and get you? He always came and got me. So he would usually come and pick me up at my hotel in his truck and would drop me off in the truck. And sometimes that meant driving from Pasadena to Koreatown where I was staying to go to dinner in the SGV. And then he would drop me off in Koreatown before driving back to Pasadena. And sometimes I would be in Westwood doing a UCLA thing, but it was always, it always involved the truck and it always involved time in it. And what I would bring friends from New York on dinners with him when you when they were in town, or if I brought Angelinos along to meet him who hadn't met him, they would always be like, oh yeah, we'll just take an Uber and get it, you know, and meet you there. And I'm like, no, no, that's not, that's not the way it works with Jonathan. He picks you up in the truck and you ride in the truck because that's part of the experience. So what was the conversation like in the truck? Do you remember any particular ones in the beginning of your uh, friendship that kind of blew your mind? I mean, Jonathan had the slow roll ability to blow your mind on any number of topics, he could speak very slowly and it would trouble you every once in a while that you would think that he wasn't finding whatever you were bringing up or your response to whatever he had brought up interesting. But I think the thing I learned to do over time was to tune into the frequency that Jonathan communicated on. The thing that always amazed me is that he could be cogent and intelligent and composed on any topic at any time. He just took the time he needed to do it. So I think some people found him like quiet or wondered if he was standoffish or, you know, if he was reserved. But I think most of the time he was just thinking and then saying smarter things than the rest of us. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to share? You know, Guisados, the taco chain there now, I didn't know anything about it. You know, maybe they just opened their second or third location when we went to it. But we went and he was explaining the whole concept of guisado tacos, which was new to me because I'm from New York and our taco culture is weak. And I saw the Toreador and he said how spicy it was. And I'm like, whatever, let's get one. We can handle it. You know, you and me. Chili's Toreados are something you always see as a garnish at decent taquerias. I mean, both here and in Mexico. Here's the same thing, except they use serranos instead of the jalapenos you typically see. And they throw in some habaneros just for fun. And they put habanero sauce on it. So you are dealing with a taco that is just 
pure burning fire. We sat down, we ate all the other tacos first, and we each took a bite of that, I think it's called the Toreador. And within seconds, both of us were, you know, convulsed with tears. I mean, just streaming down my face. My nose is running like full five alarm fire going on. And the counter crew who had been pretty chill about our arrival at that point just started laughing because obviously they knew who Jonathan was. There were enough, you know, placards with his name pasted up on the wall. And they gave us these tiny little glasses of milk. And I don't know, just something I woke up thinking about the other night was sitting at a table with Jonathan, both of us like bawling our eyes out, drinking little glasses of milk, eating tacos. And it was, you know, the sort of experience that you could always end up with and, you know, with him having and, and, and never knew when you could anticipate. So I don't know. I'm going to miss the guy terribly. He made Los Angeles a better place to be and to eat and certainly made me fall deep, more deeply in love with it than I already was. After the break, we consider Jonathan's impact beyond Los Angeles. Don't go anywhere. We're back on KCRW's Good Food. I'm Evan Kleiman, and we've been revisiting our tribute show to Jonathan Gold, whose birthday is this Sunday. My name is Gina in Los Angeles. I love how Jonathan made a foodie out of my son when he was a teenager whose goal was to make it to all of Jonathan's 101 best. And subsequently, my son fell in love with his own city by exploring neighborhoods he would never have known. The death of Jonathan has hit me very hard. And when I saw it, um, I was actually eating in San Gabriel Valley at 888 Seafood. And it's all I could think about. I can't imagine there's anyone who could ever replace him. He's a one of a kind. Was there ever anyone that wrote about food with the kind of conviction that Jonathan Gold wrote about it with? Hi, Evan. Um, This is Catherine Mayhew from Nashville, Tennessee. I've had to explain in the last few days who Jonathan Gold was around these two parts. I love that he thought if the table was too small, you don't limit the seats, you just get a bigger table. And Evan, I will say that I surely will miss you saying, where are we going this week? Last year, the L.A. Times restaurant critic Bill Addison made a bold statement. Then, writing for Eater, he said California was now the most influential force in American dining, even surpassing New York. We're talking about how Jonathan Gold helped make that possible. In California, you have not only this exquisite bounty, but you also have chefs who, like never before, are proud to tell the stories of who they are through their food. They're proud of their heritage. They want to reflect the heritages, the cultures around them in their food. And that is what makes California so exciting. I'm going to quote what you say at the very end of the article. You say, California's messaging dissolves rigidity. It whittles away at the cultural notions of them versus us. It urges chefs to find their own somewhereness in the Mm. foods they serve. When I read that, I feel like you could substitute the word California and insert the name Jonathan Gold. 100%. You know, I've been thinking a lot about restaurant criticism in the last few days. And, you know, it was invented for America essentially by Craig Claiborne and 
Gail Green and Mimi Sheridan in their own distinct and very important ways sort of molded and pioneered what we know of restaurant criticism today. And Ruth Reichel, first in Los Angeles, first in the Bay Area, then in Los Angeles, and then in New York, you know, taught us critics about storytelling. But when we think about what we care about most today, about not just what we're eating on the plate, but why we're eating it and how we're eating it and with whom we're eating it, that comes from straight from Jonathan's work. And so interesting then, too, that much of the critics that I mentioned, including Ruth, who ended her career as a critic at the New York Times and edited Gourmet in New York, you know, that was New York influence. But now, in this moment, we're looking to California and who led the example, who is the man who taught us all every week about broadening our own sense of community? It was Jonathan. I was sitting at my laptop, finishing up some work, honestly, and the text started flying in. And, you know, it's always that strange thing when your phone starts going mad and you're like, what's happening in the world? And I just couldn't believe our our bard was gone. I I can't believe how deeply his work has influenced all of us. Reading Jonathan made me want to do better. I would read his reviews every week. I'd think, you know, <laughs> push harder, Bill. Go to museums more. <laughs> read more literature. Know more about the world so that it's not affected when you try and bring that into your criticism, that it's just part of your body and part of your soul. And that's what he did. How did he do it? He was just a genius. None of us would be who we are if it wasn't for Jonathan. That's L.A. Times restaurant critic Bill Addison. Last year, he wrote a piece for Eater titled, Sorry, New York, California is just better now. I mean, I just want to go back through those hours of footage because I feel like there's all this incredible history of L.A. from his point of view. Filmmaker Laura Gabbert spent nearly five years shooting Jonathan Gold for her acclaimed documentary, City of Gold. I wanted to talk to her about what she saw and heard during those years. From the very beginning, I knew I really wanted it to be a film about Los Angeles, first and foremost. It's jo- it's about Jonathan, but I really wanted those because you can't separate Jonathan from Los Angeles. And that is the way I convinced him to do the film, because he had been approached by other people to do a documentary. I think the thing that made him sort of relax into it and say, okay, we'll try this for a little while, was that I really said this is a film about Los Angeles. It's about the city you love and you write about. Everybody in the world has an idea of what Los Angeles is. Everybody thinks they know what Los Angeles means, even if they've never been here. And if you live in Los Angeles, you're used to having your city explained to you by people who come in for a couple weeks, stay at a hotel in Beverly Hills, and take in what they can get to within 10 minutes in the rented car. The thing that people find hard to understand, I think, is sort of the, the magnitude of what's here. The huge number of multiple cultures that live in the city who come together in this beautiful and haphazard fashion. And, you know, the, the 
fault lines between them are sometimes where you find the most beautiful things. That, I really wanted him to talk about that in the film because it's actually very close to what he says in the preface to Counterintelligence. And I remember I had read that over and over again. I was like, wow, he just really gets that feeling of living here and that feeling of having a relative or a friend come visit and arrive and then start complaining to you about your city because they've been here for a day or a week or, you know, they've driven from LAX to your house or whatever. And how sort of once you've been here for a while and you call Los Angeles your home, you feel defensive and you feel protective and you're like, you don't get it. You know, there's so much more here. We've all heard about his lateness and his difficulty in committing. And you certainly experienced your fair share of that. He was a a tough collaborator in many ways, but also incredibly generous. There was even a period of time in the middle of making it after he had canceled a number of shoots on me where I just took a break for about six months and I didn't film anything. But, you know, he would text me or call me and say, hey, I'm doing this thing next week. Do you want to come along? You know, after about a year and a half of filming, he would start to do that a little bit. When you're making a documentary, that's when you know it's actually going to really happen because you really need a collaboration between the subject and the filmmaker. Like, there are things I really wanted him to do. Like what? Cook for us in his kitchen. You know, I want... He had been very reluctant to allow you to enter his personal life. Yeah, and, and so he didn't want us to film his family or his children. He didn't really want us filming very much in his home. He did ease up on all that stuff after a couple of years. You establish trust. Lori is the one who finally said to me, you know, I think you really need to film Jonathan with his kids because they have such a special relationship. And I just said, well, I've just been trying to be respectful to the fact that he didn't want the kids in the documentary. And she was like, I really think you need to do it. One of the things that I really wanted to capture was how much he kind of indoctrinated his kids into art and culture and literature. And because I'm a parent, too, he was a role model for me. It's like it takes time to do those things, you know? It's like you insist you go to the museum with your kids and you insist you do these different things and listen to different kinds of music. And I think he and Lori had done that since they were tiny and that was just part of their life. So it was just what they did with him. But I loved that he would go to the museum and stand in front of a painting for a long time with Izzy and Leon and they'd talk about it. And it was never in a pretentious way. It was just, just that's just how they spent time together. And I, I really wanted to capture that because I feel like that's such an interesting dimension of Jonathan that you don't get when you read his weekly column. That's City of Gold filmmaker Laura Gabbert. We've been talking about what it was like to follow Jonathan Gold around over the course of five years. Finally, we close with parting advice from Jonathan himself. In 2010, I spoke with him about his rules for eating out back when he was writing his counterintelligence column for The Weekly. For Jonathan, some of the best restaurants could be found in the most unassuming places. A decade later, his wisdom is as timeless as ever. Next time you're driving down Western through Koreatown, stop into a random place with writing on the wall that you don't understand. Sit down, sort of make them deal with you, and they'll bring you the one dish that they have. It'll probably be good. Okay, now when you say make them deal with you, for some people that's really hard. How do you go about doing that? It's happening less and less, and I like to think that maybe the conversations we've had have had a lot to do with it because we're getting people from all parts of the city to go to all other parts of the city to eat. But sometimes when one walks into a restaurant that one clearly doesn't belong at, the servers may think that you've wandered in there by mistake. And, for example, in Korean restaurants, often they'll 
try to serve you barbecue, even though the specialty of the restaurant isn't barbecue and they really haven't served barbecue to anybody in three weeks. They will serve you the goat stew. You look around. If everybody is eating a specific dish, that's the dish you want to be eating. And if you point to it, smile, nod. It doesn't matter if you speak a word of the particular language in question. I, I love the idea of a random, just a random drive-by and uh, to to a mini mall and and sit down. What about from a neighborhood point of view? What about for people who have never gotten on the freeway to go to a certain part of town just to eat? Some of the great concentrations of restaurants are the Pioneer Boulevard in Artesia has probably 30 or 40 Indian restaurants of every description. Most of them are pretty good. Actually, all of them are better than the ones in your neighborhood. And anything you pick at random might be decent. But if something looks like it's from a specific region, that's the one you want to go to. How would you know that? If a restaurant is called, to give a specific example, the India, it's probably going to be a little more generic than a restaurant with a name like Tirupati Bhimas. If you can't begin to pronounce or think of how to pronounce or who to call to figure out how to pronounce a name of a restaurant, that's the place to that's go. That's the place to go. <laughs> <laughs> I love it because it is so antithetical to most of the American experience, which is ease and comfort. Right. That isn't to say you shouldn't go to the saffron spot for ice cream because the ice cream is really delicious. Do that after you go to the one, pla- one of the places you can't pronounce. Give us some other ordering tips that don't just involve looking at what other people have. If you're in a restaurant that has mostly dishes you've never heard of, don't order the dish that you have heard of because it's, it's not there for the right reasons. And Give even- us an example. There are some restaurants where I've been to seven or eight times and ordered very well. You get to the point where you ask the waiter to recommend something, and out comes the sweet and sour port. Ah. In a restaurant that mostly does the food of northern China, which doesn't even include that much pork, that's not good. People always think they know what you want to eat because they have some idea, but your idea is to eat something else. You could, you could ask the waiter, you know, what does your grandmother like here? That, that often gets good responses. And... I definitely realize that not everybody listening is that interested in eating spleen or or a terrine of pig snouts or those things exist. They won't give them to you unless you ask for them because they want you to have a good time. And you have to remember that they're not trying to freak you out. They will not give you the uh, snail and pork blood dish unless they're sure that you really want the dish of snail and pork blood. That's an interesting combination, by the way. It is. I would caution you not to place too much emphasis on what the letter grade from the County Board of Health might be in the window. I mean, I know the joke has always been, you know, A is American Chinese, B is better Chinese, and C is Chinese. And it's not completely true, but it's true enough most of the time that you're not in any physical danger of being to a restaurant that has a C. A restaurant that has a C doesn't want to see, believe me, and they may be doing things in the kitchen to help them get up to that level. And the other thing is that when restaurants are marked down, not closed, but marked down, it's often for really trivial things, like the clearance is three sixteenths of an inch instead of a quarter inch. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with the physical plant and not anything your food actually touches or comes into contact with. Right. What happened in the early days of the letter grade, which is that people got marked down 
severely for things that were cultural. I don't think it's happening quite so much anymore, but there's still some of that. Health inspectors do not like to see ducks hanging, even though ducks have been hanging in windows of Chinese restaurants for the last thousand years, probably. So some of what you're seeing involves a cultural bias. Now, what about cash versus credit card? That's interesting. A lot of really good places don't accept credit cards. Yeah, when you're when you're being adventurous, have have a wad of cash on you. Right. If you have if you have some time on your hands and you're looking for places that are off the map, um, you might try going to say the uh, Chinese Yellow Pages, uh, which are online, and put the names of restaurants through Google Translate. Oh, that's a great idea. Which sometimes will tell you the specialty of the restaurant, which won't be indicated in English. Maybe won't even in the restaurant be indicated in English, but you will know before you go in if you're looking for a particular kind of noodles that this is the place named after that kind of noodle that will probably be good. That was our friend Jonathan Gold in 2010, giving us his rules for eating out. We'll treasure them and follow them forever. Thank you so much for listening to our tribute to Jonathan Gold that aired last year. We also set up a memorial website. Visit kcrw.com slash jgold. If you missed any part of this week's show, listen on our website, KCRW's mobile app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Try Apple Podcasts or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team for putting together this episode, which earned a James Beard nod. Nick Liao, Laryl Garcia, Joseph Stone, Joel Stein, Rosalie Atkinson, and Kat Yore. I'm Evan Kleiman. From all of us at Good Food, happy birthday, Jonathan. We miss you.